Guys, I'm really glad that you're here. Um, and if anything from the last number of years that I've experienced um, is helpful, um, that would make me really uh, glad. I'm just going to read a short section of, Jer- of Nehemiah that I read last night and, uh, and then pray once more and then we'll jump right in, okay? So this is probably not the most familiar passage of Scripture, um, but it's what Nehemiah says. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also preserved in the work of this wall, and we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one oxen and six choice sheep and birds, and every ten days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all of this I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on this people. Remember for my good, O my God, all that I have done for this people. Sacrificial service to help God's people go forward in their work. Founded on trust in God certainly captures, I think, pastoral ministry in general, but I think also specifically it does for a church revitalization context. So I'm just going to pray for us once more, and then we'll really jump in, okay? Uh, Father, like I just said, uh, I do hope you would take some of uh, my experiences and our churches and Uh, Use them for your church, for your church, Lord Jesus. So, um, in however uh, this time goes, Lord, and whatever we have time for and whatever questions there might be, uh, we really do ask that you would uh, guide everything that's said and thought in a way that would help help us and help your church. Uh, We do love you and care about your glory and Ask for your encouragement and your wisdom in this, in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, everybody got a handout? Okay. So, uh, not this past summer, but the one before, my, uh, my wife and my three children and I moved about three kilometers across the city um, from the apartment we lived into a, a new home that we bought, and um, it was anything really but a new home. It was actually quite an old home. Um, It probably hadn't been renovated since the 1960s, so you can picture like a kitchen floor that was bright red and orange laminate and mint green walls, and uh, one of my favorites was the countertop. It was faux marble in purple and lavender. So you think like, who who thought, yes, this is is a good idea, but uh, before we could move in, there was... Um, a ton of work to be done for it to actually be our home. 
before I started serving as a pastor, I worked as a carpenter. So we showed up at this new place. I mean, literally the day we got the keys, a dumpster got put on the lawn, and I showed up with a sledgehammer um, and with my kids, and they thought it was absolute bliss that they could just swing hammers into whatever wall they wanted and destroy as much stuff as they could. Uh, but I, I did that for every spare moment in all of my vacation time for uh, a few months. And uh, at first, you couldn't see much progress, right? If you walked in, you saw a lot of stuff missing, and you probably wouldn't notice that all the wires were new inside the walls and the house had been jacked up, but who would have seen it? Um, and I, I clearly remember one night, about two weeks before we moved in, um, standing there on the rafters, so there's absolutely no floor in here. There's just joists that go across, and thinking, like, how am I going to get this all done? My family's moving in in, like, two weeks, and there's not even a subfloor. Um, and just feeling the discouragement and the weight of um, my family counting on me. Um, and then, uh, of course, the Lord worked that out, and uh, since then, there have been so many times where I've sat in that same house, and, and even though there's still so much work to be done, there's still just a subfloor, um, we've been there a year, I sit there and I'm overwhelmed with a sense of gratitude that God's given us this place and it's close to our church um, and it's no longer um, red and orange floor and, and all that stuff. Um, but, but it's one of, one of those wonderful places and things I'm really thankful for and um, I think God's taught me some things through that kind of renovation for church revitalization. Um, at different times and in different ways, church revitalization can be a lot like those two different moments, right? There's a lot of um, moments of discouragement and feeling overwhelmed, uh, but there's also some really wonderfully encouraging moments and uh, amazing rewards. I'm glad that this is the path the Lord has put my life on. Um, so I want to do today um, something that's primarily geared for um, pastors, people that are thinking about serving in uh, church revitalization setting. Um, there, there will hopefully be lots to learn if that's not you, um, but that's the primary gist of this today. Um, so it's geared towards practical principles for um, men that are serving in revitalization contexts. And if you're not there, but you're serving there, um, this can be really helpful to know how to serve there and certainly how to support um, the pastor that you're serving um, under and with there. So um, let me just give you a real quick then and now, um, and then uh, share some of my assumptions, and then we'll go through these together, okay? So... Um, we're in the city in Toronto, um, west end of Toronto. Our building is not a storefront, but it's right on uh, a main large street with storefronts and restaurants. The church, I think, now is 89 years old. I believe it was started in 1927. Um, when I got there six years ago, there was probably 40 or 50 people, um, mostly older saints, many of them quite older, like late 80s and early 90s. Um, I've done close to a dozen funerals. Um, since I arrived there, um, it shrunk. And then about 
doubled, I guess, at this point. Um, although, and I hope you'll hear this today, there are things that I'm much more glad for than numbers. Uh, commitment of the people that are there, love for God's word, desire to serve. Uh, we're just moving like full speed ahead into eldership. Um, so uh, there's younger families and um, babies. My kids were the first kids in the nursery and babies there for quite a long time. Um, and still lots of faithful older saints as well. A lot more work to be done. Um, that should give you a bit of a picture. That also tells you what kind of revitalization it is. So it's not a, it's not a liberal church that's, that's sort of discovering the gospel or coming back to the gospel. And it's not a large church that was, um, you know, it just in need of becoming word-centered. Um, it was an evangelical church that had some vitality, but that was also dwindling, that had um, a number of years like that. Um, so that, that should set the context for you a little bit. If you visit... This Sunday morning, you'd see a guy that's 100 years old um, leading the concluding hymn, and he'd be accompanied, he will be, Lord willing, uh, by a 97-year-old woman named Gladys playing on the organ after the sermon. Um, it's true. Uh, the, Vince, who's 100 years old, is sharp as a tack, too. Um, singing along those hymns would be a multi-generational congregation, um, there'd still be a lot of silver-haired saints, but you'd see younger families and a number of families that are having their first or their second child. Um, in addition um, to that, you'd come and you'd see uh, you know, people in their 20s and 30s starting out the service, um, giving announcements, our interns, um, people playing the grand piano and acoustic guitar. We still have a very classic um, style to our service, not modern. Um, we sing as many hymns as we do, newer songs. But if you were to go on there six years ago, uh, it would have felt like you walked into a service from the 1960s. And that's not an exaggeration at all. Um, how a lot of people dressed, how the service felt, um, all that kind of thing, okay? So let me tell you my assumptions, and this is really, really important, okay? Um, I want to share things that are specific in, in some sense the church revitalization um, there's a lot of crossover with pastoring of uh, all different contexts um, but these are in some ways I think at least in my experience and context pretty key to church revitalization um, so I'm assuming a lot of foundational things today okay guys um, and, and things that are absolutely necessary and way more important on, on, on the greatest level than anything I'm going to say today. So things like having word-centered ministry, um, expositional preaching, good leadership, having a healthy biblical vision of where a church needs to be going towards, um, trusting in God's word instead of um, jumping on bandwagons and, uh, and all kinds of gimmicks. Uh, making sure that elders have character qualities, all those things that are absolutely foundational, praying hard. Um, I believe them. At, at the, everything that I'm going to say matters very little, if at all, if you don't have those things in place already, okay? Everybody hears me there, okay? Um, I'm not speaking on those things today. Um, there's some great resources for that. Um, you can read a book generally like Nine Marks 
of a Healthy Church by Mark Dever. I think that's in a little tiny bibliography at the end. A really good resource that's geared more towards church revitalization is this little guide to revitalization that Southern Seminary put out. Um, if you're not aware of it, you can get it free online. And there's a great chapter by Brian Croft, who did a church revitalization, um, I think in Kentucky or somewhere down south, um, called The Roadmap to Revitalization. Um, there's some excellent chapters to read in the beginning and the end of that um, PDF. It's free, um, worth the read, some really encouraging things. A lot of things that I'm going to say you would read there um, in, in sort of these guys' uh, own articles about their own church revitalization. Uh, so I don't think I'm saying things that are completely new. I also think that they're transferable in most cases. Now, like anything else, it really does depend on your context, and these things have to be weighed very carefully. Um, but, um, but they are pretty transferable, I think. Uh, and although they're not comprehensive, um, I do have 18 points, okay? So um, they're, they're not super long. It's kind of an homage to my first pastor. I heard him preach at a conference in Pennsylvania called the the John Bunyan Conference, and Car D.A. Carson was actually there. It was the first time I heard him, and he preached a, a message on 18, or how to grow a Calvinistic Baptist church, and there were 18 points. So when my talk came to 18 points, I was like, this is awesome. I, I, I have to do it. Um, yeah. So it's a good way to connect with my old pastor and, and talk to him. So I think what we'll do is we'll try to go through these, um, and... And Lord willing, we'll try to save some time for a question and answer at the end. Um, so let's just jump right in. Before I do that, though, um, this isn't just a throwaway on the front of the sheet here. Um, like I said, we're not really talking about foundational principles today, but these are the principles, things like 2 Timothy uh, 4, 3, and 4, right, about um, faithfulness as a leader and as a pastor and, and how we're called to live that out with, with complete patience. Um, these are those truths that are founding, um, I hope, and shaping the very practical day-to-day -day principles that I'm going to share with you today. And of course, they carry on. Last night at 11.30, I was writing a Facebook message back to um, a younger guy in our church and he's struggling, and his marriage is struggling, and, you know, I was looking this over, and my heart was, you know, brought to, to a good place by reading 2 Timothy 4.3, right, and 4 about patience. So they obviously are um, for so much of pastoring, but anyway, they're the foundations to these principles. So let's jump right in now with all that. Um, so here's number one. Principles for revitalization, commit to the long term. Um, there's a couple reasons for that. First of all, it takes a long time to do anything substantial in a church. Right? You put in a couple years and you just begin to see some good things change in church culture. It takes a long time to see a church helped by a pastor. So that reason alone is a good reason to commit long term. But, but the other more... Uh, important or, or say more um, pertinent reason for, for this in a church revitalization context is that you need to bring change slowly and patiently. You have to. 
And to be able to do that, you need a long-term commitment. Long-term commitment is what actually empowers patients. You can't just have a one or a two-year plan. You need five and 10 and 15-year plans, and you need to be able to tolerate and be patient with all kinds of things for a long time, and you won't be able to do that unless you've really committed to be there long-term. My strong opinion. Um, there's obviously theological reasons, I think, to commit to somewhere for a long term. I uh, like how it makes for effective shepherding, but I think there's a really practical reason with church revitalization. It's also incredibly helpful for your church family to know that. Um, I told our pastoral search committee, um, I hope that I'm buried here. I wanted them to know I'm not here just for a job. I want to be part of this church family. I want you to see that um, I want to be here in this with you. I love you. I care about you. Um, and I think it's really helpful for that, too. Um, it was a powerful description, too, because there were a lot of people being buried in that church at that time. So, um, okay. Um, number two, build trust because sheep will follow a shepherd that they trust. Uh, the temptation usually is to let change and the things that need to be changed be what controls your thinking and your planning and and your doing and that is not what you want to set the agenda for the first year or the first couple of years um, you want to make your a number one priority building trust um, and not just the notion of trust either let me be clear you actually want to earn people's trust and show them that you are a man of integrity and that they can trust you. Um, and there's a difference there, right? Part of that is that there's already real people to pastor in that church, right? Um, that are deeply important to Christ, and that he calls you to shepherd already before anything happens. The day you walk in, that's the case. And to be able to faithfully pastor those people, you have to earn their trust. You have to show that you love them. Um, Brian Croft says, it's all too common for a young pastor to walk into a church and conclude that these older members are the problem. Um, they're not, or at least most of them are not. And even if they are, you know what? You're still called to shepherd them. Um, and you have to hear 1 Peter 5, that, that God has brought you to that church to shepherd the flock of God that is already among you. Um, but in addition to the people that are already there, Building trust is going to be instrumental to helping the church grow in the long run. Later on, you're going to be asking people to follow you down the road of major changes, right? And you need to build a reservoir of trust so that people will follow you. They will only follow you if they trust you. And if you try to get them to follow you when they don't trust you, they will get unsettled and maybe hurt and hindered in their walk with God. So... So you've got to make your priority building trust. What does that look like? Well, it looks like uh, caring more about actual people than abstract church growth. Um, that's a real heart check, usually, for guys in, in revitalization settings. Uh, it means things like sacrificing your salary for a time if the church finances require it, because you want to do the right thing for the long-term health of the church, right? You actually want to do that, and in doing that, you also demonstrate to your church um, that you are a man of integrity and you actually do care about 
this church and its long-term health. Um, you want to show genuine consideration for people. Um, in every way that you can, I think you want to flex where you're able to, right? Um, so you go into a church of an older congregation, and they may care about something that's relatively insignificant, like that you would wear a tie on Sunday morning. Now, for theological reasons, I can make a really good argument why God does not care if I wear a tie or not, right? But he really does care if I am understanding and sympathetic and, and gentle with these people. And, and this is a way that I can show consideration and love them. And you know, if you're in an urban setting anyway, everybody that's 20 and 25 now thinks it's cool to wear ties again anyway, right? So, <laughs> so it's funny how things change, but, but there's, there's ways like that where you can really um, flex in all kinds of ways uh, to love your people. I, I think it's similar to a missionary going into a foreign culture where you realize that you are the outsider joining them, right? Um, so you need to go in and understand them um, and, and see what's important to them and gain their trust. Um, and, and that's how you approach those first couple of years. And, and I think it's a good rule to say that you should know your church and you should know your people and know them well before you even begin to change anything. You want to know when you change something, what those effects are, as, as best as you can calculate anyway. Um, okay, just checking the time here. All right, I better speed things up. Only got 16 more to go. Um, so this is, this is number three. Open your home regularly into every demographic. This is part of building trust, but it was such a big part for us that I put it as a separate point. Um, we love opening our home. We often have... Uh, two to three people into our home a week. We waited two and a half years to buy a home so that we could be within walking distance of our church and TTC accessible so that we could have people over easily and host them. Um, but, but if hosting doesn't come naturally to you, um, I still think that it's, it's an invaluable way to love people in tangible ways and to build trust. Um, and, and, and we also know this, you know, when you walk into a church building, um, there's this weird dynamic, right, where, where you can actually get away with coming and saying hello to one person, not to everybody else, right? But you can't do that in a home. Um, you have to sort of greet everybody. There's different dynamics in a home that breed intimacy for whatever reason and help you to get to know people more quickly, and they get to see who you are in your context. So hospitality has been huge for us. Um, so that's number three. Number four, exercise great patience in bringing about change. Um, there are going to be things that are objectively wrong um, that you want to be willing to tolerate for a time, even for a long time, without trying to change them. So you might come into a setting where they have um, a church board that's run by deacons and secretaries and everybody else instead of elders, um, or there might be children's curriculum that is okay but not great, um, and there might be a bunch of people on a membership role that shouldn't be there, and it's unwise to actually make those changes right away because it's going to unsettle people. They're not going to follow you in those well. And, and you shouldn't feel like you're compromising, right? You have to do a heart check all the time and ask yourself, 
is the reason why I'm not dealing with this because of fear of man or self-protection? Or is it really that I am looking out for the long-term health of this church and even these people, right? Am I actually leaving these things intentionally as part of a larger plan to address them at the right time, in the right way, where people will actually hear me and it won't divide the church. Um, there's also going to be a lot of things that are not even in the category of objective wrongs that you're going to want to change. Um, Sunday school classes, the order of the morning service, how bulletins look, Bible translations. I mean, there's a gazillion things, right? And most of them can wait. Um, change will come at the right time. Sometimes it comes in really long, sometimes it takes a really long time. Sometimes um, it's way down the road. Sometimes God has to remove somebody for it to happen. Um, but I think I had really good mentors. Uh, Paul Martin, who is the chair of the Gospel Coalition, was um, one of those key guys. And I was so thankful for the advice. Listen, go into West Toronto, preach the word, Gain people's trust, and don't change anything right away. Okay, here's number five. Be willing to address certain things right away, regardless of the cost. Um, some things just need to get addressed, um, no matter how hard they are going to be for the church or for you, because of the nature of the sin that they are, the way that people are sinning against someone else. You may have to address it, and you may even have to bring formal church discipline within a few months of being at your church, and your church might be 90 years old and may have never had official church discipline before. Um, I came into West Toronto, and um, now you've got a picture, right? These are older saints. Nobody's online um, for the most part. And the biggest family in the church was running an online S&M website. Okay, and I'm not talking about like, not that it would be okay either. I'm not talking about like, like subtle images. I'm talking about seriously dark, hardcore stuff. Um, we had to do church discipline within six months of being there. And you have to, right? No matter what the cost is going to be for the church or for you, um, you have to be willing to face those kinds of things and lose it if that's what Jesus wants, right? Uh, to be faithful in a setting like that. Um, and it was amazing how God blessed that. He fast-forwarded a whole bunch of relationships between the existing leadership because we had to go through this crucible together. Um, and what I'll talk about later was initially a very gray area became very black and white, obviously, right? Um, and and in our our church discipline meeting, the, this church that had never been in formal church discipline before, instead of saying, why are we doing this? This is heavy-handed. They were saying, why wasn't this done before? Um, and, and it was not. I, I made so many mistakes along the way. Um, it was God just graciously at work in this church, right? Okay. Um, you have to address certain things regardless of um, anything else. Okay, here's number six. Make some changes as rapidly as possible. This is a slightly different point. Um, you're going to be 
patient with most things, but there are also going to be some things that you want to change right away because they're really not serving the existing people well or they're going to be this like just big practical hindrance to, to new people. Um, and some of those things are going to be meaningless and you're going to change them or start them and no one's going to notice. And other things are going to be, be uh, distressing and you're going to make a calculated um, choice to do that um, and those things are just so hard, right? It's very subjective. We had terrible sound. There's piles of 80 and 90-year-olds, right? Why am I spending 20 hours during the week preparing a sermon if no one can hear me, right? So we need to get a sound system right away, right? And get head mics. And, and, and th those are those little things, right? Like I had to think. No one's ever preached out of a head mic here before. I'm, I, you know, I look like a baby if my beard is shaved. I, I, I'm thankful I've got my wife and my kids in tow, so everybody knows I'm, I, I shouldn't have been standing when it was 15-year-olds before, right? So, so I'm thinking, do I want to get a head mic? Because I know some people are going to see we, we haven't had a head mic before. And, and is this just somebody trying to look new and cool, right? So you've got to think through all those things. Um, anyway, it's, it's a good idea because it actually helps people hear and they really appreciated it. And those were one of those things I explained. But, you know, we, we had a church that was predominantly run by seniors. There was no online presence and no website and, and not a budget to do it. So we created a website on WordPress and, and just had to do it. You just have to do it. Um, when you walked into our church building, and now the church building was fairly well taken care of, actually very well taken care of. But when you walked into the foyer... It looked like some kind of crazy um, nursery school right when you walked into the foyer. There was all this like crazy construction paper and this big trough with foam that you could put fake flowers in. And it, it just didn't look normal, right? And I knew, <laughs> I'm not putting too much stock in this, right? But I knew that this is going to be difficult for people. It's not going to seem normal. So I didn't change it right away, but I laid a lot of groundwork over the first year to change that. Our nursery was in a dank basement. I didn't want my kids down there. Um, but that, that's the nursery, and that's people have invested their service there, right, and, and made this. Um, so we waited a little while, but as quickly as I could, I got that upstairs in a bright sunlit room, right? Those things do matter. Physical space does matter. You've got to keep all your priorities straight and not wrongly trust in those things. But, you know, a, a building that just seems normal um, is, is helpful in these kinds of settings. I think of these things as like triage items, you know, those things you want to go in and, and they're kind of critical, and you're going to spend some of your trust capital on them, maybe even, um, but you're going to change them. Okay, number seven, know your church in order to carefully lead your church. Um, you need to know your church and, and individual people really well and be very sensitive to them. You know, if you've got to have a hard conversation with your wife, um, you shouldn't just do that whenever you feel like it, right? You understand her. You know when is the right time to have that conversation, how to go about it. Um, I think that is one of the key things that has really been helpful over the last six years is to really get to know people, to understand what is important to them, what they've valued, what they've poured their life and service into in the church, and, and make decisions about what to change 
with all that information. So, you know, if you change a few things, right, even minor things, um, you know, you change what the bulletins look like and change the order of service and you repainted the foyer yourself because you ripped out the nursery school looking stuff, it may not seem like that big of a deal to you, but there are people that have been worshiping in that building maybe for 50 years and it seems huge to them. That is not the time to make one more change. Um, or there's going to be a few people that are serving faithfully in key roles that, that you know are, are finding this hard but really trying to serve alongside you. And you want to be really sensitive if you've changed things that have affected them. Should I do something else? Maybe not. Um, you want to realize how much certain areas of service mean to people. I got there. No one had ever figured out that um, you can use the church printer to fold the bulletins. It actually does that for you, right? Um, the person that had been folding the bulletins had come in every Saturday for the last 30 years to <laughs> fold bulletins. Um, it would be more convenient to have the printer fold the bulletins, but it would be so not worth it, right? Um, those are little things that you can just change and then realize, you know, I just really wounded somebody that I, I didn't need to wound. I shouldn't have wounded like that. Um, and it's funny, you know, we, we, we still have people fold them by hand because somehow in the end it turned out to be more convenient anyway. And life is just weird like that sometimes. Um, but, you know, you're going to know leadership. Some, some of the guys that are in leadership are going to just be okay with things sort of falling to the back burner and even dwindling out and you're just kind of intentionally letting them fade away um, as one strategy to see certain things change or pass on. Other guys are not going to be okay with that. They want to know exactly what's going on, and, and you need to know all that stuff. Sometimes I very deliberately taught and laid lots of groundwork and changed things, and other times I just went ahead and changed it. And, and there were mistakes on both sides. Both of those things can be um, helpful approaches, I think, and there's just a ton of subjectivity to it, unfortunately, and it needs a lot of prayer and a lot of thought and a lot of heart-checking to really see, I think, before God why you're doing what you're doing um, and, and those kinds of things. And, you know, sometimes opportunities will just arise and you need to jump on them. I was in our very first um, church board meeting. So um, the church was officially governed by the secretary by the, the person that was on the hospitality committee, by the deacons. Um, everybody had a perfectly equal vote in all things pastoral, right? And I thought, you know, maybe in five years God's going to allow this to change. I'm thinking that this is a big issue for people, and I'm going to be really gentle. I'm gonna, I want to be here for a long time. I'm going to trust that God's going to work it out over time. So I come into this first meeting, and Gladys Lee, who's a 90-something-year-old missionary from Chad, stands up and says, you know, this committee, this thing, this board was started when we didn't have a pastor before. And I think that today we should just completely disband it. And Pastor Justin should lead the church just with the deacons. And everybody said, sure, that's great. And I said, <laughs> thank you, Lord, right? <laughs> like five years and five minutes. Um, and, and you just... You, you, at that point, you say, you know, you play, play cool, thank you. That would be great, right? And, and now we're going to have eldership in a few months, um, Lord willing. I, I sat down in another, we used to have church planning meetings, and, um, and another missionary 
Don Whiteside, who's a great guy, one of my best friends, he's 90, or no, he's 89 years old, um, said, you know, I think uh, Justin preaches from the ESV, so we should just get rid of all of our Bibles, our King James Bibles, <laughs> and get ESVs. Now, this is a very contentious issue, right? And everybody goes, well, Don said it, let's just do it, you know? Okay, Lord, thank you very much, right? That all happened, like, right away, and you can see God sovereignly working and caring for his church, um, but, but, you know, it's just great to see that. Um, I think you carefully evaluate each change you make, little or big, Try to be really sensitive to people. Okay. Number eight, pursue the unity of the church with great intentionality. Um, having a church of young university students with 90-year-olds is very much, I imagine, like having a church of Jew and Gentile. You know, there's like soup, right, Dewey? I mean, Dewey goes to West Toronto, but... but you know, even before you were there, there, there was such a difference in, in the outlook of some guy that just graduated from Ryerson that's working in advertising downtown that's 22 years old and Vince Matlas, who's 98, right? And they, they have very different outlook on everything. Um, and I think you want to do your best to work hard at Unity, and it takes a lot of work, and you prioritize it over a lot of things. Um, you know, young, younger people would come and they would leave coffee cups under the sanctuary pew and they wouldn't keep the, keep the kitchen as clean as it used to be kept. So I came in every Monday morning and I cleaned the kitchen and I cleaned the sanctuary before the person that came in to clean the kitchen and the sanctuary came in because I knew I wanted people to be able to come in and drink their coffee in the sanctuary. I know that's heresy here probably into some of you guys, but, but, but I also knew that it was getting under the skin of people, and it was just a really easy way and a practical way to, to kind of just deal with that little issue, right? Um, and, and you could come in on a Monday morning and think, what, why am I doing this, right? And then you realize, this is, this is great that I can do this, right? I'm, I'm serving my people in this little but significant way that really is helping unity, um, speak well of older people to younger people. Celebrate them. Speak well of younger people to older people. You'll need to do that too. Celebrate them. Make opportunities for them to serve together. Invite them to your home together. Um, you know, it's, it's a hard thing to work out unity with different generations. Um, these guys that are now really close friends of mine, uh, one's a deacon and one was a deacon, these these two older guys, um, I grew to really love them, and yet there were times where they didn't trust me, and they thought I was doing something that I wasn't doing, and it was honestly like heartbreaking at times, you know, there was, there was a time where they said, you know, you just don't love older people like you do younger people, and, and that week specifically, my wife had just gone through, not because she was trying to show this, but just because she actually did love our seniors. She just spent the whole week like baking pies and going and visiting all of our seniors. And here I am, right? It's one thing if people attack you. It's another thing if it's your wife. And you just feel crushed by that. Um, this other guy who was a really close friend and still is, um, he thought I was doing something so underhanded because he couldn't understand what was happening. I didn't want another guy to come and speak and he didn't understand why and in the end, it came out while well, this other guy that was supposed to come and speak was, uh, you know, there were these huge moral failings. And, 
and it all came out in the end, but it was, you know, it was days of just heartbreak because I loved this guy, and I knew he loved me, and yet he thought I was doing something terrible, and the Lord worked it out, but there, there's difficulties there, and there, and there was just as much pain for, for the older generation, too, and I'll say that in a minute. Um, okay, number nine, um, cultivate an atmosphere that's cross-generational. You want a gospel-shaped church that's in line with texts like 1 Timothy 5, right, where there's younger serving alongside of older, and like Revelation 5 where you've got different cultures and socioeconomic levels. Um, that means that you want to create a church atmosphere that is home for everyone. Not everyone's going to like everything. That's not your goal. But, but we very intentionally have a very classic style to our worship service, to our music, all of that kind of stuff, because we want people that are 80 to be able to feel at home there and people that are 20. We sing just as many older hymns as we do Bob Coughlin songs, and we always will for other reasons, but, but that's very intentional. Um, we have taught and communicated from day one that you need to put personal preferences aside for the sake of advancing the gospel, and you've got to be willing to sacrifice for that. That's your answer to everyone, and that's what you just keep teaching everyone, right? And that, that you've got to keep secondary issues secondary. Some people drink, some people don't. Some people are amil, some people are dispensational. Some people love hymns only played on organs, some people hate hymns that are played on the piano. Um, and, and yet you're trying to say, look guys, we are putting the gospel first. And all of these things have to stay second. Now, there's, there's other things, obviously, like first-order things that are not like that at all that you need to be willing to, to make um, dividing lines if you need to. But, okay. Number 10, focus on building God's kingdom and not only your local church. When people come and visit, yours may not be the church that God wants them in. Um, meet up with them. Tell them about the good stuff that God's doing in your church. Um, but also let them know that you're praying for them and you want them wherever God wants them and mean it. You know, really mean it. Be willing and trust God that, that he's going to bring them where he wants them, right? That will set your heart free from discouragement and it will ena enable you to just faithfully shepherd people. And when people don't come back, I think you can, you can ask questions like, are there things that we should be doing better to serve people? But you are saying at the end of the day, God, I trust you. You're going to bring the people we need at the right time and take other people other places, and we're okay of that, with that. Speak well of other churches. Pray for them. Fight every um, notion of competition in your heart. Do not become a recruiter or a marketer. And there's a fine distinction, right? I think we do want to speak well of what God's doing in our church, and we do want to do things with excellence. But there's, there's a dividing line between that and actually becoming a recruiter. Um, and, and you know, you trust God's going to bring the right people at the right time, um, and he does. Um, okay, number 11, employ an evolving strategy. Uh, revitalization happens in, in stages, Right? You're going to come in, you're going to build trust for a period, and then sort of the next season begins. And for us, what that looked like was me involving myself in every last detail of the church, super-duper micromanaging everything. There was a lot of people 
that, that weren't necessarily doing things as they could have been done and, and things need to get reined in for a while and overseen very carefully and then wait a time of waiting for God to, to teach people or bring the right people and then at that point re-handing things over and delegating things. Um, that was a season. There's going to be approaches that you adopt. I think it's a really good policy to have only members serving in key roles within a church. But we didn't start out that way. Um, we needed people to help in the beginning. Um, and, and we waited some time to implement that policy. Um, there were people on the membership roles that I didn't deal with the same way when they left the church as people that came into membership after I was already there, that, that knew what membership really was supposed to be like, that heard what you know gospel living looked like. Um, I'm going to have to answer to God for that at the end of the day. I think that was the right decision. Um, I, I sat with Paul Martin one afternoon after he preached at West Toronto, and I was just trying to work things out and ask him questions, and he was saying, you know, you're just going to have to grandfather some things in, right? You're going to ask new things of new people and yet not demand them of people that have been there for a long time that, you know, have just done certain things a long, a long time a certain way, and that's okay. Um, and it was okay. Okay, number 12. Don't underestimate the power of small things. Um, we began a little simple coffee time in the back of the sanctuary. And that took a long time, right? Because we're not only drinking coffee, we're, we're serving coffee right in the sanctuary. The carpet's getting completely ruined, right? Um, people, people had to kind of commit an extra, an, in an extra degree to leave the sanctuary and to go around in the back room to actually stay in fellowship that were new to the church. And people wouldn't do that. So we decided at the right time, okay, we're going to just try coffee right in the sanctuary. And it really changed, in part, some of the church culture of just getting up and leaving, which was the church culture, to people actually staying around after service and, and getting to know each other um, and forming sort of more broad relationships with lots of other people in the church. Um, I think small things can have significant impacts. Um, this is a small point, um, so I'm going to move on. Okay, um, 13. Realize that having a new pastor can be difficult, usually is difficult. Uh, you can come into a church and think that everyone else needs to change and grow when you're going to realize that you, along with them, really need to change and grow. And you're going to think, I've been so patient, and then you're going to realize, wow, they've really been patient, you know? Um, they're going to experience changes that are not going to be easy for them. You know, how would you like it? I, I'm not a big fan of gospel music. I appreciate its roots, but I'm not a fan. Um, if, if everyone just decided one day, you know, we're going to start singing lots of gospel music in our church, I would find that hard to sing to God on a Sunday morning. I don't like that music. Um, that's what it was like for a lot of older saints when we just simply did some hymns and some more modern good songs, you know, and didn't necessarily play them all on the organ. Those are big changes for people that are hard. Um, it's not easy. People may want revitalization. They may have called you to their church and, and asked you to revitalize your church. And then when it started to happen and when there's 50 new people there, they might feel a great sense of buyer's remorse. Because they wanted it to happen, and yet this isn't the church they've known. And not, and not because you've changed a lot of things, but just because there's 
25 or 50 new people there, and it just feels so different to them. And that's hard. Um, you know, I got into all these little mini tiffs with a woman that was a member of West Toronto from the day it started, honestly. It's 97 years old. Um, she was there as a baby or something. Um, and, and I realized at some point, you know, she's been here for how many pastors? 10, 20 pastors. And no pastor has ever actually told her how to do her job before. I think it's right that I was telling her how to do it. But I needed to realize that, that this is completely foreign for her, you know? I think you need to be forbearing with people. Um, they are going to sin against you and get frustrated, and you're going to do the same with them. Um, and sometimes it's so sweet. You know, the people that are, are the great enemies of yours become the dearest friends. The day that I showed up there, um, I had to have this big meeting with Ed Gerard. Um, and I'm saying his name because he's a great guy, and you, uh, he'd probably love this story at this point. Um, and he just wanted to take me to task because I was teaching the heresy of amillennialism. And he was a dispensationalist. And I'm not even really an amillennialist. It's like I don't have a strong eschatological view. So I had to sit down with him and hear about how I was this crazy heretic. And I said, no, I'm not. And these are the reasons. And, and you've got to leave it there. And, you know, him and his wife are like adopted grandparents of ours now. They love our kids so well. They buy them gifts every birthday and host us like crazy, even though they're in their 80s. Um, Ed's got cancer now, and like we're heartbroken because we love him. And 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 you know, you go through those things and you see sometimes there's just saints that are struggling that God's going to work out in the process of conflict. Other times they're people that haven't been converted, and maybe God's going to remove them. Um, but some of your greatest enemies um, can really become dear brothers and sisters. 14, speak well of previous pastors. Um, if you're in a revitalization context like West Toronto that was evangelical um, and a pastor hasn't had any major moral failures, chances are that brother loved Christ. He may not have had blind, he may have had blind spots. He may have done things very differently than you have. Um, there may be things that he did that have long-standing negative effects, um, but he's probably a godly man, and you want to speak well of him. You want to model for others how to speak about your pastor and how to speak about leadership. And even where there are areas of more serious um, you know, uh, failings, you want to demonstrate grace and understanding. Um, it's a really big temptation, I think, to speak um, ill of previous pastors, and you don't want to do that. Um, 15, I'm just trying to speed through these now. Use the right metrics for success. God desires a church that's unified and that grows together instead of one that disenfranchises existing sheep in order to just grow. Um, the greatest success, in my mind really, in West Toronto is not that we had a number of younger families come to the church, but that we have continued to retain and see people grow that were there older for a long time. Um, it, it, it's also true that it's very easy to get discouraged um, in the work of renewal. It's very easy for a wife to get discouraged. Um, you need to realize numbers are not your goal. You want the church to grow, um, but, but making Christians grow, see, 
we don't make them grow, do we? That'd be really nice. Um, but but seeing Christians grow in grace is your great goal, not numbers, really. I like what Mark Dever says, that often God then does grow the church numerically because God's pleased to entrust sheep to faithful shepherds, right? He wants them to be in a context where they're well shepherded. Don't measure your ministry after a Sunday morning or after a Wednesday night. You're either going to think things are going too well or too poorly, right? Don't do that. Don't measure your church against some church that's been established in health for the last 15 years. Three-quarters of their church shows up on Wednesday night for small group prayer, but they've been working at that for 20 years maybe, right? Look at the trajectory that you're on. Look at how God's growing people. Um, look at those kinds of things and, and be encouraged in them. Uh, 16, be ready for the church to shrink before it grows. Um, I've heard this time and again that there's often a period of pruning, especially in a church where there hasn't been um, biblical church membership taught or where there hasn't been a clear line between you know, what is a Christian and what isn't or there's been some degree of easy believism, those kinds of things. Um, that does not mean that you just leave people to their sin and just let them walk out the door. You chase them down. You try to win them back, um, and you fulfill your responsibility, but at the same time you realize that you know, God may just be graciously pruning people and moving them out of the way, um, and, and you need to understand that. Um, often I think a congregation grows smaller before it grows larger. Um, 17, find a group of pastors that that can support you if possible. Um, I met with a handful of pastors once a week for my first year. That was really helpful for my own encouragement and for putting complex things that I was dealing with before them and getting wisdom. Um, also, just having them shoulder some of the burden, not just my wife. Um, I met with one of my close friends who is also a pastor, um, I think once a month for a real long time, just to pray together and talk about how our two churches were doing together. Um, speak well of your church. Be a good shepherd. Share the things that are going on that are difficult. But, but you can see pastors that love their churches speak well of them, and you should. Um, here's the last one, and the most important, no doubt. Um, trust that ultimately Jesus is the one renewing your church. Um, you have to trust that Jesus is the one that's um, that's in control, um, and that works out in a million different ways. You, you don't prioritize filling positions or making budgets over real people. Um, you trust that God's going to provide the right people to serve in the right areas instead of guilting someone who's not really able to to serve in a certain area. You're not going to put people in positions that don't have the character to serve there because there's a need to be filled. You're going to trust that God's going to work it out somehow because you're just going to hurt them and the church in the long run. Um, you're going to preach to yourself every day that you're a Christian before a pastor and that if God is pleased for whatever reason to not let this church grow, you want to be okay with that. And you want to trust him with that. And I, 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 I understand that it's easy to say that as somebody who has seen things go fairly well. But I still believe that. I don't want my identity to be as a pastor first. I want it to be as a Christian. Um, and, and you have to trust God's the one that's ultimately got to renew your church. He's got to do the work here. You can't do it. You seek to be a faithful and a righteous shepherd, and God's going to do what, what he wants to do. Um, and you don't be overcome with situations that look impossible. You trust that God can intervene in them. Um, I, I was telling this story about 
this family um, that that ended up running this crazy, um, not crazy, but sinful website, right? In the beginning, it started out as just about as gray a situation as you could ever imagine. Um, the son, who was about my age, was a textbook flatterer. I'd never met anybody like this. You would walk in with your wife and he'd say, wow, your wife really pushes that stroller. Awesome. That's great. Or he might say something like, your wife's really beautiful. That's kind of strange and even scary if you're a female, right? Um, it might be nice if you're 80 and it's a, just a nice compliment. But if you're younger, it, it was starting to scare people. And yet it's a very difficult situation to deal with because it's so gray, right? So I sat this brother down and talked to him about it. And he told me it was only because of his ethnicity. And then he physically threatened me. And then his family left the church. And we ran after them to get them to come back. And we ran after them again to get them to come back. And it was a big deal. And then his dad, who was a deacon, sent a letter to the church saying that they were leaving the church. And, and I could just tell that his dad did not write this letter by how it was written. So I Googled it. And I found out that it was... It was plagiarized from some, somebody else's letter, and it had all kinds of personal expressions in it, so that wasn't okay. And that led me to Google their family name online, and wham, up comes their S&M website, right? My wife was right there. I'm like, okay, you look at this, honey. Um, I'm not going to look at this, but sure enough, like their address and all that kind of stuff, and, and of course, we didn't want that to happen for them, right? But in God's providence, he took what would have been such a gray area and so hard to deal with on a church level and in church discipline and made it so black and white for everyone that everyone was saying like, yes, of course we have to deal with this. And I've seen that happen time and time and time again. There was another deacon, um, and I, I'm uh, telling these stories in part two because I want to explode some of your categories of what older people can look like or be like. There was an older deacon who was furious at me um, because I was trying to do everything. And, and there was a sense where I was involved in everything, but he blew a gasket because I changed the sink in the, in the bathroom because we didn't have the 400 bucks to pay a plumber to do it. And he screamed at my wife in the middle of a, the end of a service in the back of the, the uh, sanctuary. And, and, and this had gone on and on and on and on. And, and you know, I... This is a brother that I think genuinely repented at the end. But anyway, it was such a difficult situation. You know, right as things came to a head, um, there was just this huge sin issue in his life that God just brought to light out of nowhere. And he had to step down. A and it was sad. And he was one of those awesome cases where I think he genuinely repented. But God used that to sort of bring him out of the position that he was in. Um, and, and that's just, those kinds of things have happened so often where I just trust that God is at work and you ask for specific things and he meets them. Um, so uh, I'll just end with this. Um, every, almost every year uh, in our annual meeting, um, I read Ephesians 5 about Jesus' love for the church. And I say, you know, I enter into this next year waiting to see how God is going to bless us and use us and, and I do so with a deep trust in the reality that our church belongs to Jesus. That's our hope. Um, trust that Jesus is the one that's ultimately in control. Um, I think that is the most significant and practical and powerful principle 
um, that, that's upheld us and, and our church over the last six years. Um, we are two minutes over now. Um, I don't know what the schedule is like, and you guys have been really attentive, and I appreciate that. Um, do we have to run somewhere else? Is there a minute if someone has a question? Does anybody have a question? Go ahead, Jay. Uh, yeah, good question. So they're four and six and seven. Um, yeah. Just a question about that. Um, when they first came to the church, they were very young. Now they're, this is what they know, obviously. They've grown up. Yeah. But there's still probably likely some deficiencies in what you would have yeah. really liked for their fellowship. What do you yeah. do to bless them as they try to, I don't yeah. know, the churches that will be like, hey, come to our exciting program. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, they were the only kids in their age for a few years, and then the Lord graciously brought a couple of other families. Um, we lived we lived in a neighborhood that was, I think, one of the most highly um, populated neighborhoods um, in the demographic of children in particular. So it was really great for evangelism, but it was also really great for our kids because they had piles of friends outside of church. So the Lord just graciously, graciously did that. Um, but there's certainly things I've thought about, you know, like one of my best friends is the guy that's going to become the elder, Lord willing. He's already been voted in. Um, and, uh, and he has kids just about the same age as my kids. And God may te- take him to a teaching post somewhere else. And that's going to be a huge blow to my kids. Um, but, you know, I, I'm still just preaching in my heart. Like I'm... I'm I, I want to look out for them, but I also want to trust that if that happens, God's going to work that out somehow, you know? Um, so we, they're in a Christian school that was sort of initially happenstance, and now we absolutely love the school. You should totally check it out. It's Westminster Classical Upstairs, um, and that's been really great for a fellowship for them too. Um, but yeah, I mean, those are the things you think about, right? Um, it's, it's a struggle for younger people when they come too. Part of what hospitality did four younger people when they came to the church is that they had friendships with myself and my wife. They didn't have anyone else in the church their age at that point. So they loved everyone, but they didn't have a closeness with the, the people that were 60 years older than them. And we became their first friends. They became out, they not really our first friends. I mean, we had close friendships with other people, but you know, in, in that sense where you sort of connect in a little bit more of a, uh, on a, on a different sort of level. Any other questions? Go ahead. Yeah. If anyone has to go, please, obviously, by all means, go. Financial decisions. Yes. We believe that the pastor has a duty involved in financial decisions of the church, especially if CCRA really doesn't want things, that thing to happen. Yeah. Um, I think those things depend a lot on the church context. Um, our church had some really great things set up initially. They had an outside audit. We were going to get rid of it because it was expensive, and um, and we almost did, and it became an issue. Actually, that was like one of the issues in, a, in an annual meeting that people got a little contentious over, and I said, you know what, let's just leave it for one more year, and we'll see what happens, and now we can afford it, so we just keep it. Um, but we have an outside bookkeeper that does things really well. Um, we, we moved to having checks double-signed, um, but I am hugely involved in our church's finances. Um, I don't see any of the money that comes in every week or budgets or any or uh, givings or anything like that, but I'm the one that's 
that's making the three-year budget plan and the five-year budget plan, um, to me, that's an integral part of shepherding. And there isn't someone there yet that's thinking in those ways. Where do we really have to prioritize our resources? And how do we go? We had some money in the bank, which was great, but we weren't making our budget yet. So we said, okay, for the next three years, we're going to actually decrease what we spend and wait until we come in line with what we're actually spending. And then once we get there, we'll start raising salaries as we're able to. We'll start giving even more to missions. And then we'll start using our savings because we don't want to just have to live off of our savings. And, and, um, and the Lord, you know, is gracious in that. But so anyway, that, that's, a, I guess, a roundabout way of saying that I think there's some things that a pastor has to be really careful about in terms of making sure that there are the right checks and balances. But I also think that finances are a huge part of shepherding a church and that um, elders are the ones that should be involved in making budgets. Our budget's approved by the congregation, so I don't decide that at the end of the day. Um, but I think they're really important. Um, and, you know, I put a lot of time in the last couple of weeks. Our annual meeting happens in November. And thinking about what are we going to do for the next five years. Yeah, you're right. But my experience, this last year I volunteered to a, to a church somewhere in downtown. Uh, I, they are like nine months behind with the books. So in two months' time, I, I updated it, and then I just discovered that something is not right, basically yeah. with the pastor's uh, car allowance. Yeah. In other words, he doesn't want to pay the taxes. Yeah. And I questioned that, and just like what happened is with, with, in front of the board, he just asked the board to say, well, if that's not going to be the case, you have to, because what I, I said to the pastor, the requirement is you have to submit the receipt yeah. if you want a tax-free car allowance. Yeah. Right? Yeah, and I, I think those are those are those kinds of things that, that you know, you want to just be a man of integrity in whatever way you can when you're a pastor. Um, and, and, you know, I don't like... I don't drive all that much. I, when I when I do, I write it down. But the, the problem but with that pastor is he, he increased his salary without informing the Yeah, and, and you know, like this is another thing. We wanted to be very transparent with everyone. So salaries didn't used to be shown. Um, so we we show everybody what salaries are now. There's not just one big category for, you know, salaries or whatever. That's all there. We had all kinds of crazy things. We had a missions budget and a general budget. And people would give lots of money to the missions budget, and the general budget wasn't being met. And there's a responsibility to take care of your pastor first before you can send money to missions. And we want to send lots of money to missions, but so we, we made them one, and we actually shrunk our missions giving, and now we're at a place where we're hoping to triple it in five years. But it, it took time to get all that stuff righted. Um, I think we should probably go at this point, guys. Um, it was really great. Thank you very much. You talk about the foundation, which is one of its prayer, right? So how you encourage like prayer meeting in the church? I know that's one of the yeah, yeah, it's so hard, right? Yeah. I think yeah. if, if anything's caused us like more angst on a regular basis, it's just trying to get people to come to prayer meeting. Um, so we had a Wednesday night prayer meeting. 
Oh, thanks, man. You're, you're an awesome guy to like preach and teach to. You're just locked in. <laughs> so, yeah, I'd love to. That'd be awesome, man. I'd love to. That's, yeah, totally. Yeah, that sounds great. Yeah, it's hard, you know. Like, so we we had a Wednesday night prayer meeting, and it was just a bunch of people sitting around the table, and um, and then we we eventually like put in lots of time encouraging people that we're gonna make it a small group meeting, but still meeting at the church and running a kids program at the same time, um, and then just leading on it really, just on Sunday mornings talking about how important it is saying how we're looking forward to it, encouraging people to be part of it. Um, we even simplified other areas of church life and said, you know, we've been doing evangelism this time.